Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Teeth Slam Poets present Slamlet, an evening of spoken word poetry inspired by William Shakespeare, featuring London-based spoken word artist Kate Tempest. Hail, gentle folk, our tale here we will tell, a tale of wonders, many-figured thoughts, for your delight in listening, we perform, spin stories out of what the Goodyear Zunes fucking hell, that's way too hard. <laughs> Welcome to Teeth Slam, it's for Shakespeare at Yale, Slamlet. Tonight we are performing a night of slam poetry inspired by the works of Shakespeare. Now stop, I can see you sitting up straight and putting on your this is serious art faces. None of that, uh-uh. You'll be playing the part of the groundlings tonight. Yeah, so we wanna hear you make some noise, lots of noise. Because, uh, you know, groundlings would have been paying uh, the price of a ticket, like something that would have cost, you know, a beer would have cost the same thing. So basically, you guys are common folk. We want to hear you make some noise, give us some mm-hmms, you know, some snaps. Those of you who've been to a poetry slam before know how that works. But, Juliet, what would they have said in Shakespeare's day? I mean, you know, hafa! So if you want to hafa at us, you can too. But otherwise, you know, just the snaps and some general, like, groaning would be good. You know, some, uh, Because mm. Shakespeare, as much as we love it, revere and respect him, was not the Shakespeare of his era. He was a lot more like The Simpsons. His plays are full of sex jokes, cheap laughs, naughty wordplay, inappropriate behavior, and his audience would have been choosing between Shakespeare and a bear baiting. We're really glad you chose to come here instead of go to the bear baiting, which I've been informed is on the other side of the Whitney Humanities Center. You want to get up and go, you know. <laughs> so anyway, tonight, in the spirit of Shakespeare, we will perform poems inspired by his words. Um, but to start off the show, we have a feature poet from London, all the way from London. Woo! I heard Shakespeare went there once. Yeah. So, so Kate Tempest is a poet and rapper. She performed at the Royal Shakespeare Company's Sound and Fury last year, combining Shakespeare's words with her own inimitable style. Kate also fronts a hip-hop-inspired band called Sound of Rum and has published a book of poetry called Everything Speaks in Their Own Way. And she has some here tonight. So what are we going to do? We're going to support a poet and buy a book afterwards? Woo! Hafa! I like that. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, let's do Shakespeare proud and make some noise for Kate Tempest. Hello. So, my name's Kate. Uh, I'm from London. I'm a long way from home. It's, it's, it's hard to say this without sounding completely insincere, but it's really fucking cool to be here. So. It's nice, it's really cool, it's really cool. So yeah, uh, this is my poem. This is a poem inspired by Shakespeare's Tempest. My name's Kate Tempest, but I didn't take the name from Shakespeare. I didn't know anything about the play when I called myself this. But I read it recently and it's all right. So. <laughs> this is called What We Came After. I tell of him that summoned up them storms in vengeance, poisoned by the wrath of his remembrance. Him that gave language to impose a sentence, right? His name was Prospero, and he prospers by what he knows. You see, knowledge he keeps for himself, and it is used for the bad to enslave and to mystify. Know the language that fills up your mouth is imposition, and subject your ambition to a bootless inquisition. Look, 
Prospero wronged, survived. He grew wise. He got fattened on them books he despised when he should have dismissed. Well, that to this is all relative. Madness for those who can't measure it. Sadness for those who seek sedative. But gladness for those who know pleasure is all self-constructed, who know how to clutch it. You see, if by your art you have fevered the skies, man, you need to let the heat within rise and evaporate. Look. If you're the type that sees the sea's tides as against you, you will never navigate. I know. Language is for those obsessed with real meaning. Don't love your oppressor or trust your oppressor, but don't begrudge your oppressor the oppressor's oppression because each has to learn their own lesson, right? You see, if all these people were prophets, we'd profit. We were born with the truth, but we lost it in logic. Hard thing to say at Yale, I know, but... So go and find it. Remind yourself of the timeless, man. You are the planet that bred you. You are the language that led you, and you are the knowledge that fed you, so own it. Make it make sense. Make it relevant. Don't ever believe that the words of the wise are not your words to read. See, when you hear the quiet voice of vengeance in your ear, that's when you know that hell is empty because all the devils are here. When your tongue tastes shadows and your friends are shedding tears, that's when you know that hell is empty because all the devils are here. When your heart is consumed with regret and with fear, that's when you know that hell is empty because all the devils are here. When the boat sails away and your love is left on the pier, that's when you know that hell is empty because all the devils are here when you're trying to understand but the text isn't clear. When the demon jumps up straight rejecting your spear, when the view is so bleak it starts infecting the seer, that's when you know that hell is empty because all the devils are here. So call me Caliban. They gave me language so I could rain down my curses in verses and I will take them on word for word. Because I know the worst is we have to watch our good friends getting caught up in circuits. You see, the serpent, he rehearses his hisses. He makes the valiant vicious and I know now never to waste wishes. So go ahead, conjure a storm on the head of your enemy. Fine. You're just going to find yourself victim of your own negative energy. I'm like, shit, we need to extend our empathy, make ourselves sensitive. This island was mine for a home. I was free to make rhyme as I roam. Now my mind is alone as I arrive and I moan. I'm the captive of consonants. Come here to beseech you to be much more confident. Because we run around nonchalant, dejected and restless. We're like, oh, we can't change nothing, Kate, so why should we try? I'm like, yo, we can change. We can stand strange till our hands, something else, fuck, sorry, lost my words. We got our hands changed, sorry, right? We got our hands chained, clutching at freedom. You know, the freedom of mean what you say, right? And say it with meaning. We need to change our own minds before we try to change the sequence. Live with our energy, not by our reason. This the last day of my discontented season. No more will I tolerate this greed, it's demeaning. We're needing a breeze through the stifling heat of these elitist descriptions of what we can reach. You see, they want you to fear it, to not get too near it, so they can continue pretending they're smarter. Sit still, though. Receive it from self like Siddhartha. The past is just what we came after. 
So when you hear the quiet voice of vengeance in your ear, that's when you know that hell is empty because all the devils are here. When your heart is consumed with regret and with fear, that's when you know that hell is empty because all the devils are here. When your tongue can taste the shadows and all your friends are shedding tears, man, you know that hell is empty because all the devils are here. When the boat sails away and everything you ever loved is left on the pier, that's when you know that hell is empty because all the devils are here. When you're trying to understand, but this text, it still isn't clear. When a demon jumps up, it's still rejecting your spear. When the view is so bleak, it's still infecting the seal. That's when you know that hell is empty, because all the devils are here. Thank you. Uh, just, just to clarify, credit where it's due. That line I was repeating, Shakespeare wrote that line, so, you know. <laughs> Just to, you know, give him his time to shine. You know, everyone's got to... <laughs> so that, that's my poem about Shakespeare. Uh, I feel quite far away for you, and if that's making me kind of run around and be a bit aggressive, I'm sorry. I'm actually, like, quite a nice girl. I don't, that means to be, like, literally falling into your faces. But uh, this is a poem called Balance. Uh, it goes like this. Far away in a distant land. don't know if you ever heard of London. Small place. Far away in a distant land, these four kids grow up firm friends. Ambition is the youngest. A bright-eyed kid with a numbness where his logic should have been because he was ruled by his hungers. Next there was pride. Now pride, he walked with the broad stride because he from himself would his weaknesses hide. And you're right, people love being near him. They couldn't tell whether they liked him or feared him. It's more they found his self-confidence endearing. So next there was talent. Man, talent, she was beautiful and gallant, but she lived for her senses, though, and not for her sense, and so her poor heart was covered in dents. Oh, this was envy. Envy's eyes often seemed empty. She would talk loud, in lengthy sentences. She was frenzied and sensitive, tall and cold. Her eyes were green like your skin when it's marked by fake gold. I don't know if you get fake gold over here, but where I'm from, we get a lot of it. <laughs> Anyhow, they grew up, they fell out. They made up, they got drunk, they hung out from sun up to sun in and they got done in and they hit the ground running. They looked for and they found something, but it all turned to nothing though, when pride got with talent, envy with ambition, they forgot how to listen, things changed, became different, everything was competition now. Talent and pride became bitter, despised, they got hateful, sarcastic, dreary, drastic. Yes, they loved each other greatly, but their fights were terrible because they raised each other high up on pedestals. They isolated themselves. They stopped speaking to ambition and envy. They became distant and unfriendly. That's when envy got sad and cried plenty. Her indignation roused. She discovered she wanted more than she had found with ambition. He was always looking, but only got what he was given. Concerned not with what his hands held, but what they could be gripping. He was always chasing, never thought to fill the space in, and envy made him more desperate with every pointed conversation. Always forcing them comparisons, making him address... Now, every time he promised more, she always ended up with less. Yes. And so these four firm friends became four fierce forces, heading for that awkward stage that precedes most divorces. Four, oh. four joint segments of a one-body party just drifted apart and turned nasty. But pride keeps envy at bay. Ambition helps talent become more than just apparent. Talent, it will flourish. This will enable pride, which quells envy. They should exist side by side because these factors contribute to balance. Alone, 
Pride is often envious of talents. And yes, many have ambition, but talent they haven't. And some have talent, but get envious of proud ambition. And so alone, these four friends came to realize how without the others, they're just a quarter of what they ought to be. Still, everything occurs accordingly. But now when they meet up, the conversation seems to flow awkwardly. So they're just living separate lives like, shit, there used to be more to me. Thank you. I just want to uh, apologize for the swear words. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I did a show once at a festival where there was this, this like, dad with his young son. And I, I realized how much I was swearing. I looked down and he was like, no, son, listen to the other words. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, oh, shit. <laughs> Uh, this is called Renegade. I'm going to do this one and then one more, and then I'm going to leave it to the excellent Teeth Slam poets to do what they're here to do. But uh, this is called Renegade, and yeah, it's dedicated to you lot. It goes like this. Wait a minute. Can you hear me like that? Yeah. Can you hear me like that? No. Is this this better, isn't it? Is it? Okay, no, no. <laughs> it's because I can hear myself either way. I forget. I'm sorry. <laughs> Schoolgirl error. All right, it's called Renegade. It goes like this. Yo, I'm a renegade. I'm out for the truth. And I will shout this from the rooftops. You can find me hanging about. I'm from New Cross, where people go staggering around with their shoes off. And I sit there shaking my head because it feels like too many are too lost. But you look, you can recognize me because I'm you, mate. Never too late to see deeper than the surface, trust me. There's so much more to it. There is a whole fucking world beyond this one that creeps in when your wits have gone soft and all your edges start shifting. I mean it. A world that is breathing, heaving its shoulders and weeping, bleeding through open wounds. That's why I'm grieving. That's why I'm down on my knees because I'm feeling everything I am feeling. So come here. Give me your hand because I do know how to hold it. I will write every single one of you lot a poem and together we'll just set them all on fire because I am stunned by how the light in your eyes resembles brightening skies. I mean it. I would fight for your life like it was mine. That's why I'm writing tonight. I got a jam jar of wine. I'm rolling smoke, spitting bars to myself on a swollen throat, sitting out on my stoop, catching the Holy Ghost, thinking about how it feels every single time you hold me close. We're not flesh, we're all energy. We're a little bit flesh, but for the purpose of the poem. We're not flesh, <laughs> we're all energy. I care about genius, I never gave a fuck about celebrity. Why? Because they only build them up to burn their effigies. And there's more. I can feel it so raw and it's calling me back to before. That's why I walk through this landscape, grip the mics hard till my hands shake. Far more illuminated than the masons. Still I strive. <laughs> Still I stand straight faced with that mania just inches away. Believe me, I never flinch because I have ink in my veins. I don't care about the surface. I really fucking care about the infinite. I will carve a niche and hide within it. Lay down in the garden with your spirit asking pardon from our elders. They will tell us, children, every minute is the minute to begin it. So come, let's make it broader. But the thing that brings me strength also gives me such torture, mate. Every single time the seasons change, I find myself completely overwhelmed. Regardless, I hold the helm like it's the hilt of my sword. I'm a born worker. I'm the second best rhymer not enough people have heard of. It's murder. 
The first, that's my boy Con. I got a first coming on. Look, I'm an old soul, but I maintain a young mind. And William Blake showed me those who don't exhibit their influence, well, they're only holding candles to the sunshine. So if you want to talk, just come find me. I'll be on Lewisham Way watching the dawn melt away. See me? I used to spit these rhymes out to strangers on trains because I couldn't hold it down. I had a brain full of flames. And then I used to hang about with the alkies on the benches in the park. We used to, you know, talk about their lives. I'd tell them rhymes and they'd tell me why they walked out on their wives. And then I used to storm these stages uninvited. I was a little bit too excited because I had something to say and I couldn't hide it. But then I learned about patience. I learned about stamina. Every single moment stacked up and it all added to the present. So now I keep cool and I consult my essence and I give thanks for every blessing. But look, it's all so physical here. You know, the alcoholic in the offie he's just filling up his trolley till the world disappears. And me, I'm so hungry for something sustainable, something with truth, right? Something unchangeable, something like you in your room while the rain it falls, the windows are open now and the rain is splashing on our skin like it's the sea breeze. You can love me forever, don't ever need me because I'm sure you could be what completes me. So this one is for the hopeless romantics. The broken, the stranded, the pure, the pure owl, the pedantic. The fearless, the frantic, living in the belly of the beast with the rats and the rancid. Oh, these blanketed streets. And I'm like, yo, why must we starve while they banquet and feast? But Banquo will rise. He has a message for the guilty. This one is for the fast living, the filthy, the gutter mouths. This one is for the city that built me, that will knock me down the minute I don't learn right. I burn bright. I'll turn might into meager in the blink of an eye. So meet me out there on the street. We'll raise our drinks to the sky. And I will show you that you're fucking incredible. You lot, not flesh, all energy, care about genius. They can fuck off with celebrity. Sorry about the potty mouth. Because we know they only build them up to burn their effigies anyway. And us lot, we're getting closer to our essence every day, right? You're the fucking renegade. Thank you. So, uh, this, this is my last poem. Uh, I've never spoken it out loud before, so if I forget it, what I'll do is I'll leave a dramatic pause, which you will find incredibly poignant. <laughs> and I'll pretend it was all part of the package. Oh, no. Obviously not. The, I'm just going to do a short advertising break, uh, even though I was just talking about the really conscious stuff, you know. Unfortunately, that is... Blah, blah, blah. This is, a, this is, the, this is my first full-length poetry collection. It's called Everything Speaks in Its Own Way. I don't know if you can see under the lights, but it's... Got gold on the front. <laughs> it's a book, it's 70 pages of poetry, and it comes with a CD that's like a, an hour. I know it sounds like quite a lot if you don't know who I am, but uh, <laughs> there's like a, a CD with some live performance. There's also a DVD of some footage of a gig that we did and some interviews, blah, 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 blah. I got it. I can't sell it here because you can't exchange money, but we could set up some kind of market down the road. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever, if you want one, come and talk to me. We can work it out. But this is, this is what it is. And uh, even if you don't want one, isn't it cool that I got it? <laughs> but in the spirit of the reason that I'm here, this is just a short poem uh, about Shakespeare again, who I actually think is pretty cool, but it took me quite a long time to realise that. It goes like this. 
He's in every lover that ever stood alone beneath a window, in every jealous whispered word, in every ghost that will not rest. He's in every father with a favorite, every eye that stops to linger on what someone else has got and starts to widen in distress. He's in every young man that grows boastful, every worn-out elder drunk all day, muttering false prophecies and squandering their lot. He's in every complex misunderstanding that occurs between a group of friends and don't ever seem to end, even when its beginnings are forgot. He's in every young girl who ever used her wits to outsmart the status quo. He's in every vain self-admirer, every passionate, ambitious social climber. He's in every misheard word that ever led to tempers fraying. He's in every pawn that moves exactly, oh, sorry, he's in every pawn that moves across the board and still remains convinced that it's not playing. You see, you might think his words are ancient, you might think his words are dead, but chances are you've quoted him directly if you've ever said, oh, that sets my teeth on edge, or there's a method in my madness, or pure as the driven snow, or oh, it makes my hair stand up on end, or all the glitters is not gold, or I haven't slept a wink, or my heart's upon my sleeve, or the beast with two backs, or the word puking, although that's harder to believe. <laughs> it's true though, if you've ever fought fire with fire, or had too much of a good thing. Yeah, his pen was mightier than his sword, but still his words are like blades that sing our very names as they strike. His, the milk of human kindness, up in arms, break the ice. His, the green-eyed monster. His, discretion is the better part of valor. And now his words, with their arms around each other's shoulders, swagger to the ends of their phrases, quietly pleased with everything they've done. How his phrases have lasted, no, how his pages have lasted through the ages of how he has become a poet whose poetics have embedded themselves so deeply in the fabric of our language, it's like his in our mouths. His words have tangled round our own and given rise to expressions so effective in expressing how we feel, we can't imagine how we'd feel without them. So, his less the tights and garters, more the sun's demanding answers from the absence of their fathers, the hot darkness of your last embrace, the laughter of the night before, the tightened jaw of the morning after, mate, his in us, part and parcel of us all, from our royals to our rascals. I'm here to say that he's more than just something boring taught in classrooms, in language that's hard to understand. He's more than a feeling of hopeless inadequacy when you're trying to cram for an exam. He's in every driven woman, every pitiful villain, every sore loser, every great king, every fake tear. And his legacy exists and lives on in everything he's written. If you listen, you'll hear him everywhere. He's mine, he's yours, he's our Shakespeare. Thank you. by All's Well That Ends Well, and Juliet, our resident Shakespeare dork, will give you a little bit of information. She oh. asked for that title, by the way. 
All Souls That Ends Well is a really wonderful play because it, it follows a young woman, a shy, quiet young woman who's madly in love with a guy who never looks twice at her, very handsome, very kind, very brave. No, this is Shakespeare, not a trashy romance novel, I promise. And he ignores her, abuses her, tries to escape her, joins the army, attempts to sleep with other people, but in the end she gets to marry him, so it's a happy ending and a feminist tragedy. <laughs> Give it up for David. Yeah. Oh, actually, I should put this down because it's super loud, so I was told to stand away. All right. So this poem is called Helen of Troy, Helena of Shakespeare, Helicute of Light Now. She says that I should love a bright, particular star. Helena says, "'Twas pretty though plagued to see him every hour, to sit and draw his arched brows, his hawking eyes, his curls. If I had seen something similar, I probably would have said, she's cute. <laughs> or more likely, nothing. Helena speaks with the beauty of the person she observes and so must lighten the absence of its force because I know that force. It renders you speechless. I'd like to think, because of some internal calculation that figures if you don't speak, you can watch more intently. So intently that you might not notice the fire hydrant in front of you until it's five seconds past a new bruise. And every once in a while, words do float to the top of your stupor and are released like air from bubble wrap. Cute. Smile. Hair flip. They tap dance on the hardwood, flat-lined surface of your consciousness. No pulse to your thoughts. But if there was a list of things I know I'd always enjoy, warm weather after cold, my father's echoing laugh, the first burrito back home in California, light up there would be conversations with someone gorgeous. But that's only because the tug of physical attractiveness pulls so heavily on my leash that talking to an embodied trophy of symmetrical features and proper ratios feels as much of an accomplishment as poems crafted almost to satisfaction. Forgiveness from someone you've wronged. Feeling, though, is a multifaceted feature that darts in and out of whatever we consider the truth. Something to be played with by playwrights and artists, like Shakespeare, a before Sophocles who wrote in the time of gods as characters, not themes. Gods who knew how to party like animals in animal houses and were known by both first names and pet names. And so today, it can be hard to believe those myths. The story of Narcissus, who was tortured into enough of a dreamer that he hugged his hunger for beauty close enough to self-asphyxiate, so in love with his own image, that he wouldn't leave his reflection for food or water or self-reflection. He literally died staring at himself. It's kind of hard to believe. Shakespeare, though, saw the Narcissus in all of us, enamored with the human form, often not our own, but others. I see eyes that must be as fixed as Narcissus's wore all around, right there, and I'm flattered, and a reflection in a puddle. In Helena, Helena's moved by her husband's beauty, but could she ever sit still content next to that beauty? Or she moved only in perpetual aimlessness, collision course of conflicting desires, Newton's cradle, metallic ball of perpetually pushing each other. Some part of us knows sometimes all's well that's there and then ends quickly. Even if it comes back again, flames, wind, the stirring of beauty, timeless contexts and appendages of humanity. Feel and release. Goodbye for now.
In Shakespeare's era, the correct response to something like that would be to throw anything they happen to have in your pockets. But since beer and rotten fruit aren't really allowed in the Whitney, we're going to have to improvise. Yeah. And seeing we're not going to be throwing up scores in the normal slam competition style, we're going to ask you guys to sort of say what you would throw up if you had it on you. So depending on what, how, how much you like that poem, you could throw up, you know, a phone number. Cotton <laughs> cantaloupe, you know, roses. So let's try this out for the first time. We're going to see if this works. What would you throw up to David? Just yell it. Come on. Okay, I hear it. I hear a teddy bear. Ooh. Ooh, nice. I think we'll go with the teddy bear. I like the teddy bear. Okay. I also like Nicole, who's going to be reading a poem next. <laughs> that was a really smooth segue, guys. It was awesome. Uh, this is going to be uh, vaguely Tempest-based. We have so much Tempest. That's because it's not the best poem. I'm sorry. Was that out loud? Okay. Uh, <laughs> but it was really nice. Okay. So this is like a lesson from Caliban to Ariel, but different. <laughs> Everything you know about quesadillas is wrong part two. This is not a one tortilla slice of cheese second tortilla situation. Nay, tis two tortillas separate. I bet you thought the melting was the hardest part, but you never got the fold right. You have to heat up the tortillas a little bit, teach them to bend. White torn corn tortillas are classy, in a bad way, obviously, and don't get me started on flour, and if that's American cheese you're working with, I, I give up. <laughs> if I got sick from black quesadillas in Oaxaca once, I didn't know what they were made of, so I asked my mom, what was I doing in Oaxaca, was her response. I, um, I lost the connection, or my internet died. While we wait, let me tell you a story about dogs. It's not my story, God, that it were my story. It, were my, it was my godmother that told me that if you work in a house for a rich white woman with a little white dog and you can't sleep at night for the barking, add crushed glass to their ground fancy feast, watch them eat it like a birthday cake. When you sleep at night, you will hear barking. It will be the last time. It will be the sound of undoing, of glass grating insides, a cry out to Prospero, and no answer. You will say, I told you there would be no answer, and the dog will say, yeah, yeah. But what was I going to do? My godmother promised it could only happen to purebred dogs with stomachs like fine little sonnets, and my dog is a mutt from the pound with a little bit of German Shepherd and definitely some Rottweiler, but it's still not my story. And I can still find ways to fuck this up, like that one time I tried adding grilled chicken and raw bell peppers at the same time, and everything just kind of came out overcooked. Look, kid, I like you. You and I are in the different wards of the same iambic pentameter prison. I get you. I get that we are people to be got, that we are cliches by now. And I think that's the hardest part. Your, your skin is white like porcelain and not the kind I want to crush, but don't tempt me with that inherit the earth bullshit. I'm sorry I killed your dog. <laughs> At least I'm sorry I'm not sorry I killed your dog. I'm sorry sorry is not in my character description. Truly, if I could go back in time to the day I learned what authenticity meant, I would pull the curtain. 
I would plug my ears. I would eat the ground glass myself, die like a French poodle, insides all grated like Wisconsin cheddar. Like that time I thought I could eat black quesadillas and live to tell the tale, I'm telling you. If I ever meet my maker, I will take his fucking quill. I will write him naked. I will write him star-crossed, a tamed shrew, a ship that's sinking but never sunk. I will say, dude, William, or God, or whatever your name is. Did you seriously have to make me a cannibal? Did you seriously have to write me Caliban? Did you have to write me so angry all the time? Such an enormous ax to grind. I watch Grey's Anatomy on Friday afternoons, and I like it. <laughs> a lot. And I still light fires when I need to, and I can eat flesh with the best of them, but I'm teaching Ariel to make quesadillas, and I think he's getting the hang of it. Two tortillas separate, so you can just exit stage right. Don't worry about us. We don't fold that easily. Okay, I know what I would throw up, Nicole, but what would you guys throw up? Come on, give it to me. Wisconsin cheddar. Woo! Nice. Tastes Yum. good. Okay, so next up we have Iffy. Woo! And her poem was inspired by. Oh, wait, no, not tampering with Sonnet 27, but Sonnet 27. Okay, so give it up for Iffy. Woo! Woo! Weary with toil, I haste me to my bed, the dear repose for limbs with travel tired. But then begins a journey in my head to work my mind when body's works expired. For then my thoughts from far where I abide give birth to stories I cannot control, stories that unfold grandly like oriental rugs onto my mind's bare brown floors. I am merely a cherry blossom pattern watching from a panel of wallpaper as dreams furnish my mind with unexplained epics, stories told so quickly I don't question them. In the morning, I sift through the rubble of the life I live with eyes closed. I find locks of my future daughter's black hair and find that I have been married. I find a pearl exfoliated by the contractions of the ocean's belly and find that I have drowned. Each morning, I add myself to the world identical to anyone but for the burden of these false memories. They run through me like diesel, and something in this writer's blood yearns to make them real. So I draw my dreams in human language, call them poetry, call them fiction. I am the age-old vehicle of inspiration, nameless, beside the muse who writes me into relevance. Her altar is here in the sheets where the shape of my body lies like a signature. By day, you put the color in my thoughts. They warned me about this kind of love, the kind that makes of us refugees in a state of distraction, seeking asylum in flower-laced poetry. I wrote poems to you. Once, you asked if you could sleep in my bed. I imagined you tossing and turning in my dust, flakes of my skin swept up in yours, your warm body, coating my sheets in oil and your dreams dripping into the dregs of mine. I said no. <laughs> Baby, I love you, but 
You don't tamper with this altar. This is the portrait of the artist at work, and you can paint it from a distance, see her crawl beneath the underbelly of her blanket and lie still. Still until the wee hours dye the world a million shades of black, and she can't find herself. Silence scrubs the world from her used skin, and she is blank, a canvas for the scribbles of a second consciousness. Hmm. That night, my thoughts from far where I abide began a zealous pilgrimage to you and kept my drooping eyelids open wide, looking on darkness which the blind do see. I saw the two of us tossing and turning in the starry night of a closed eyelid. The next day, I couldn't look you in the eye. Baby, I love you, but I refuse to see you in my dreams. Nighttime is when I do my best work. <laughs> that time has nothing to do with us. The morning after you invaded, I wrote your portrait. I wrote you into histories populated by silhouettes growing against needlepoint skylines and into odes to unsung boys unsticking themselves from the rose thorns of manhood and into the wallpaper of my autobiography. And sometimes I still write you, but it is only ritual, only when my soul's imaginary sight presents thy shadow to my sightless view which, which, like a jewel hung in ghastly night, makes black night beauteous and her old face new. When they ask me how I write, I tell them I merely shed stories through my fingerprints. When they are born, they bear my features and coloring and temper, but they can trace their lineage without spelling my name. Thus, by day, I claim to wield the pen, and every night, my dreams hold ink again. Next up, you may have guessed, we have Juliet. So I just have a little quote to read um, from the play that inspired this following poem, um, Hamlet. I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. Get up, Juliet. Not to be a response. What? Is this cowardice? This urge to die, to sleep, no more to see the dreams that we have wrought ourselves, our seas of trouble and our ports of rest. What? Is this our fight? My arms are indeed my arms. Drenched in life, in quietus, my bod can bear, but lively too, and I have taken them up. I will not grunt and sweat. I have no conscience. I am no coward. Doubt truth to be no liar, and I am that consummation. Rather, I will not bear my scorns. I scorn myself. I dread no countries, fear no dreams. Indeed, I am not God, but rather angel, and I will sleep no more. To sleep, if I can shuffle off my step and loose my coil and in my native resolution change my hue. And as he said once himself then, the rest is silence. Not to be discarded. To be a response. What? Such insufficient deliberation, Prince. Such cowardice and yet not enough conscience. 
<sighs> to fail to find that sovereign reason, perhaps your sweet bells are indeed jangling. I know mine are, I know what they will. Oh, what a piece of work I am. <laughs> and in the witching hours of the night, there are some questions left unanswered, some remembrances that she has longed long to re-deliver. <laughs> and is your ecstasy so clever then? And your, does it follow your dreams so closely as they bear and shrug and shuffle and give you no answers? Well, doubt nothing but yourself. I wish not that consummation. I choose to be. I choose to bear and shrug and shuffle nothing. I choose the nymph. I choose to cling to mortal coil. I choose my angel's part. I choose the golden fire and majestical roofs to sleep. If that is what you will, to sleep no more in truth, but rather, perhaps, to dream. Rather, to cling tight to mortal coils, rather to sweat, to say, good morning, sweet prince. It's time to count yourself a king of infinite spaces. <laughs> Okay, so now, next up on the program, it says that we have Emily. But Emily has lost her voice, so, oh, oh. So, luckily for us, we will still hear her wonderful writing tonight, um, as um, Audrey has volunteered to read her poem. Yay. So, let's give it up for Audrey and Emily. Woo, woo. Is that good? Okay. Emily's right there, by the way. This is her poem. She rocks. <laughs> From Rosalind to Romeo. I'm going to prologue everything I'm going to tell you with an empty hazelnut and its fairy contents. Amazing how something smaller than an agate stone can rip between legs and teach them how to love. Fingernails gnarled but covered in varnish. She's sitting on your nose wafting sleep in your nostrils, you fail to no notice that you're breathing poison. Your mask's on crooked, love. We can't have that. If you intend to march so beautifully to your demise, it comes as no surprise that you'll always leave me for her. No, put your mask back on, darling. Keep your hoodwink on. Your cheeks are burning ruddy, and your anger could set a fire to paper mache. I know this firsthand. You were the first person to lay hands on me and you needed my flesh as though you meant to cure leprosy. Accidentally, you incinerated me, but I never minded falling to your feet, a pile of ashes on the floor. The wind always picked me back up again and sent me singing across your cheek, but maybe I'm saying all of this because I've had a little bit too much to drink. Cheap vodka wipes clean all my inhibitions, and you never knew how to spend time with high class. Your pearls were better handed to Queen Mab than to Swine. You never could tell the difference. I guess I'm living evidence of that particular parable. I've made you a man of good carriage. Don't you ever forget that. I taught you what it means to be in love, at least from a spectator's position. You're reclined with your feet kicked into the next scene and your head's in the beginning, and I have nowhere else to go. I'm doomed 
to leave you in a handful of pages. By that time, you'll have forgotten me. Replace me with a girl that's stripped to the bone so you can build her back up again. Don't you back down again. She's never tried building in the first place. All she's ever known is Fairy Feller's masterstroke falling down between her knees. She needs training, lover. The kind you gave me and your mask has fallen down again. Cheeks too flat with not enough flaws. I guess I've carved away perfection. It was all in good faith that I lost myself in your arms. I never wanted to be found again. Not even when you pricked your thumb on the spindle of Queen Mab. Not even when your blood streamed down, hit the ground, formed a rancid stream at the source, and you led this poor whore to drink first. I didn't die. Not yet. And I'm made of tougher, tougher stuff than she is, and I don't think that she can take it. She won't make it. She'll stumble on your shirt tail, but maybe I'm saying all of this because I've had a little bit too much to drink tonight. Straighten your mask out, lover. Comb your fingers through your hair and flash the kind of smile that travels over light years just to blind your victims to oblivion. Your lips curve my intestines into knots. I know full well that you never thought someone could love you enough to cradle the bitter image of you between pricked palms. Such silent service, you said, is better reserved for the hopeless, that dreams of another's benefice. I am not half so vague as a round little worm pricked from the lazy finger of a maid. I am the hopeless, feet kicked back in the last scene and my body is truncated in the next. I have nowhere else to go, lover. I have nowhere else to go. Juliet, I feel like I should be saying sorry to Emily or something. <laughs> we forgot to ask you guys to throw things up here for a couple of poems. Oops. Throw something! What are you going to throw? Beer bottles! Beer bottles! Beer bottles! No. Hey, that's Okay, sweet. Nutella! Nice. Okay, next up we have Adirin. So make some noise for Adirin. Everyone hear me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> we are such stuff as dreams are made on. The soft stuff. Light and molded by baby's powder palm, we are dusty. Grass strands tall and thin in a field. We sway, ring around the rosy hard because you've always tasted like something from my childhood. I am such stuff as rest thoughtful on a hero's forgotten bookshelf, unassuming. Waiting, namely for you, you are such stuff as burns bright in the glow of little girls' nightlights. You can make music in your murmur, in your hum. And I've always wanted to dive into you a little more and sit there. I want to relearn you sometimes. Throw away time and still the foot that's been hitting hit to your heartbeat since before I understood rhythm. I want to swing again with the leg muscles of a seven-year-old and make faces at you from across the mud field. Love faces that only you would know, me. Know me and my faults and throw the mud two little hands into my perfectly parted plaits because you like me dirty and I like you liking me. Well, St. Louis plucked me up from our soil, swept me away with the flick of a fingernail, taught me that I am easily removed, 
We ripped like an old pair of jeans, frayed, stained, and I told you I loved us with the expectation that we'd repair. I told you miles were just miles, asked you to be grateful for planes. Well, we didn't, and they aren't. Then you refused on a day that was shoved aside with the other photos and crumpled, torn post-it notes saying, I love it when I don't remember when life without you stopped being as unbearable. Only that it did. That Sherbrooke's love notes bubbled off the surface with me and with you, not staying my you. We grew and sobriety hit hard like rusty tilted sea. Saw you flying high and lofty as you always have, tossing gutted juicy juice boxes inches to the left of the clearly marked part garbage can because you, you king of the playground, perfected not giving enough of a fuck long precious moments before the switch from light-up sneakers to the back seats of cars. And me, forever beneath you, Kissing the ground with my bottom and my curled ashy toes, watching you fly awful and amazing and cloudy, but I liked adolescence. The strain of budding blooms against sky baby midnight blue fabrics, eyes hooded with heavy mascara lashes start to accompany me to mall and movie dates. And through the span of the 144 months that you've leased a fragment of my memories and my imagination, I think you did too. This doesn't have to be bitter. I hope you don't think this is bitter, because even the most sincere toddler's laugh and old woman's sigh falls with shamed lover's knees next to my wishes that our lives apart have been evenly golden and sprinkled with beauty. One night, across rivers and crowded capillaries, I told you that I have always preferred the canned cups of pineapples from patched purple lunch boxes to the freshly cut chunks of Ivy League soirees, though. I would never admit that in powdered and coiffed circles. Still, one day, surrounded by alabaster and elitism, I wonder if you would let me keep you on my pantry shelf. All right, this is going to be really shocking, but next up we have Becky. And she's performing a poem inspired by Richard Arman, who's most famous as Shakespeare's fool, and in fact re- replaced Richard Kemp, uh, William Kemp, who, well, quit. Wrong one. goes home and forgets to put down her belled cap, pen, paintbrush. Darling, friends, your majesties, I play for your applause. The cold mirror stares back. The fool plays shadow to the world. Cynical critic, she comments on society. She sits down to think about serving those more royal than she. Underpaid, forced to fool, she thinks bitterly of her employers. Thinks of handing in her resignation early. She surfs Craigslist to find another job as a fool. (laughs) Wanted, a royal fool as a companion to the Duchess of York, a singing, dancing, juggling fool. I haven't been juggling lately. I never knew how to sing. Must deliver witticisms and social criticisms while balancing an egg upon his or her nose. I can't balance shit. A position in the theatre, perhaps. The fool will have the task of assuring the audience that there are no boundaries between the world being performed and the world of reality. Perfect. 
I will use myself as fodder again, pen myself into an entertaining being, contort my face to create feeling. The fool must wear a subtextual connotation of evil, pretending stupidity great. The fool must not possess values, norms, or a meaningful worldview, must attach him or herself to existing worldviews and turn them inside up, inside out, upside down, or backwards while juggling. Fuck juggling, humor, tact, and skill. This job would be a little less confusing if I didn't have to point out the hollow parade of smiley faces, ambition, independence, internship in Argentina, fantastic CV, me, me, I'm fabulous, climb, climb, while juggling, with a smile. <laughs> Can't I just be a cynical devil's advocate and say all the inappropriate things in all the right situations, pull royal thrones from beneath royal asses, to remind them that their academically assured, cut-and-dry opinion of the world could do with a little contradiction. I will switch sides in an argument. I have nothing to prove, except that no one ever is 100% right in an argument. I am all your wrong opinions. I have no one moral code. Only a moral code that says that I have no moral code. <laughs> Cultural moral relativism. Relativism, I, I call it, you know, and also known as flexibility, taking things easy. Ooh, sorry. Also known as flexibility, taking things easy. What I like to, oh fuck, sorry. <laughs> Time for some juggling, I think. <laughs> also known as flexibility, taking things easy. What I like to also talk about is, you know, the times when you... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Flexibility. <laughs> Taking things easy. Let's start from the top here. Um, it's also, you know, what I like to call not operating on our own, you know, heteronormative, hegemonic system and thinking that everyone else agrees with us. But anyway, besides that... Sorry. I'm completely blank right now. I might as well... <laughs> start a stand-up comedian show right now. This is called Laugh at the Fool. <laughs> Who did not memorize her lines properly, it seems, and has stage fright. <laughs> so, bear with me, huh? Yes, okay. No, not the fool goes home. That's the beginning of the poem. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, oh, okay. <laughs> so anyway, what I'm trying to say to you is that I don't subscribe to swallowing things whole. Don't chew, they say. Structures may get broken. Shit out the thing whole so you can pass it on to your children. Don't ruminate, they say. No one wants anyone spitting out their belief systems. Religion, cold, congealing on the floor, doesn't look good. Have the courage of your convictions. Have the courage to admit you're wrong sometimes. Conclusion, don't stand for what you believe in. And if any of you happen to disagree with me, I will stand here all night convincing you of this belief of mine. <laughs> Take me seriously. I mean, I did forget my entire poem. <laughs> I'm not juggling. The fool must not possess values. 
social norms or a meaningful worldview. The fool must play the world backwards. VCR tape stretched thin and rewind. <laughs> of retiring. She is unpaid, in fact. <laughs> a self-appointed volunteer. She gets off Craigslist. She looks in the mirror and sees only a shadow. Empty mirror, empty fool, some part of her whispers. Her inner majesty whispers. That hidden majesty still Forming says, fool, you are a shadow to all but me, us, I. Fool morphing to the shapes of shadows of others, mimicking in flat shade all that others do and say. I will rip myself, part fool, from others' feet so that I can find my own footing. I will keep my cynicism close to direct at my beliefs when I begin to own them. Can we throw up like a jester's cap, maybe laptop for the pigs of surfing? All right, next up we have the delightful Sophia, who is going to be delightful. confession to make, Mom. I know this may disappoint you because I'm not the daughter you wanted, but I just, I just need you to know that I am the anti-Shakespeare. Yes, it's true. When I told you I was going to study poetry, I meant that words crumble under my pen like something really crumbly. <laughs> the anti-Shakespeare. Like, in my version of Shakespeare, Hamlet is played by the Pokemon Caterpie, who, fighting under the tyrannical rule of his uncle Ash, contemplates his untimely evolution and asks, to Butterfree or not to Butterfree? <laughs> Gertrude, in defense of her marriage to two brothers, explains that she just had to catch them all. <laughs> the anti-Shakespeare, like trying to write a poem to my main squeeze only to realize that the only words coming out of my pen are about the inconceivable beauty of didgeridoos. <laughs> Why does no one write sonnets about didgeridoos? My love for you is like a didgeridoo, long and hard. <laughs> Maybe that's why. The anti-Shakespeare, like, my life is not such stuff as dreams are made on, unless my life is last night's dream about a squid named Bob and a flirtatious encounter with my 10th grade English teacher, in which case, God help us all. <laughs> because my quotes just don't have that ring to them from doing my laundry, beware of tide and starch. First thought upon seeing a hot guy at a party. I'd like to suffer those slings and arrows. Call me. <laughs> Trip to a fraternity. But for my own part, it was Greek to me. That one's the same. <laughs> the anti-Shakespeare. Like how students studying my writing a century from now will not be in English class, but in neuroscience. 
trying to pinpoint what exactly I was tripping on when I wrote about the didgeridoo. It's sobering, realizing that I'm only a bard in bars, writing friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your beers, realizing that the only beat I hear in iambic pentameter comes from my sweetmate's bed at two in the morning. <laughs> Maybe all the world's a stage, but what if you don't want me on it? There's no place for the anti-Shakespeare mom. No one will see the play about the squids. I never understood why soliloquy couldn't be about how beautiful it is to sip iced tea in July and contemplate a cloud that looks like zombie George Washington. <laughs> Why is nothing that's real to me profound? Why are only death scenes timeless? Did Shakespeare know when penning his plays that they would ever be great? I can't share my writing with you, Mom, because I'm afraid you'll realize that I'm not. But here I am, the anti-Shakespeare. I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> I don't know about you. All right, now in your programs it says that the next poet is Jacobs, but he was eaten by a squid. Uh, or Not actually. Or did you do? I really <laughs> don't not. know. Um, and unfortunately he won't be here tonight, so you're stuck with us again. Haha. <laughs> Sorry. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. I won't write you a love poem, darling. I wouldn't dare to put my mouth all over what's between us, except in the most literal of ways. I won't muddy you with adjectives that you don't need to try and pin you down with my seeing of you like a butterfly to a cork board. I won't drag you into what should be a private madness. I won't dilute you to line fragments and syllable counts and my muse, that bitch will just have to put up with it. I can't spare the thought of using you as a stepping stone to immortality, won't smear you with my fears of death by turning you into a Laura or a Beatrice or any fair youth or dark lady. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag that in his shadow, in, ooh, sorry. Nor shall death brag that thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. No! I'll fight my battles with time alone. I won't melt down your armor to fashion bullets. I can win this war with just my pens and my muse. That slut will just have to handle it. <laughs> just know that you are not forgotten, angel and that I've set you free to be a greater thing than can be set down on paper to make your own mark and not my forgery on whatever scroll it is that matters. Just let me have your laughter and your presence, darling, to hold between my fingers and to guard until I become too careless. So long as men can breathe and eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. And they fall to land upon a waiting page and be remembered. Thank you very much.
much for coming out here tonight. Thank you very much for sitting still while we talked at you. Uh, but we would also like to thank people who are not you. I know, this is the part that you don't care about, but we do. So we would like to say a thank you to... Oh. Shakespeare at Yale coordinators for all our funding. Also, the Whitney Humanities Center, and specifically Mark Bauer, for finding the amazing Kate Tempest. Woo! Oh, that reminds me the amazing Kate Tempest! Thank you. The Dean of the Arts Office, and also Office of Undergraduate Productions, for our house manager and the support in general. Thank you to you as well. Again. We, yes. We're and thanking you. I'm sorry. And thank you for bearing day. with us, some of us, me. And uh, now we have, in the spirit of Shakespeare yet again, herein you heard the twisting shadows talk, voices of dreams which echoed in your ear, thought you perhaps that our poor tales could walk, saw you illusions for an instant clear. And now, alack, our twisting times run down, quite gone and vanished, eaten with our words and with your patience, we poor riddling clowns will ask you for the gift we have just heard. To the boost us and to hold up the gift of hand sweet music, clapping strong, to boost us and to hold us all night long. Thank, Thank you, you and good night. So just to remind you, Kate Tempest's books, you know, the market dealing thing, that's maybe gonna happen. Go buy one. <laughs> The preceding presentation, delivered by Yale's Teeth Slam Poets and Kate Tempest, took place at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on April 7, 2012. It was presented as part of Shakespeare at Yale, a semester-long celebration of all things Shakespeare on Yale's campus during the spring of 2012.